Aha, it's me, the Kentucky guy. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Pill Current News Podcast. In this episode, we'll be wrapping up the special report that we've started many weeks ago on Eisenhower. We're going to show you how it all fits together. We're actually going to go over Eisenhower and McCarthy's turbulent relationship. So yeah, so thank you once again for listening to this episode of the Red Pill Current News Podcast. Aha! All right, and welcome to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm your host, the truth teller, the truth seeker, the Kentucky guy. Hope everybody's having a fantastic day today. It is a beautiful day here in the great state of Kentucky. Uh, No rain today. Finally, no rain. We've had a lot of it here in the last couple weeks. But everything's running smooth. Uh, if every, this is your first time listening to the show, before to hit, be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button. No matter which platform you're on, we're on 73 audio platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and the list goes on. Also, for you wrestling fans, I do co-host Against the Mat. A wrestling podcast with Donnie Cage every Tuesday and Saturday. We talk about pro wrestling past, present, and future. Also, if you'd ever like to be a guest on this show or have any questions for myself, you can always email me at OLKentucky, spelled out OKentucky99 at yahoo.com. OKentucky99 at yahoo.com. Now, also in the description below, is a link to our merch shop, all of our social media, all that good stuff, the new book, everything is in the description below, so be sure to check that out as well. So today's episode is going to be another special report. I know, I know, I know, it's been a few weeks since uh, and since we've got back to this, and I do apologize. We left off getting, talking about Eisenhower's, uh, basically Eisenhower's terror, uh, so... I figured it was time, and, and a couple of you have sent me some emails, and, hey, you know, what's, what happened? You just, and it wasn't that I stopped doing it. It was, if you notice, we've had several interviews with different pe- fascinating people of all walks of life uh, that we had to get on the show. And then, uh, also, there were some headlines. Tucker Carlson, you know, when things happen that affect our country in a big way, it's going to take presidents over you know stuff that we're building up to and yes this is very important this shows a lot of this that we're going over in these special reports is affecting us now and you guys are starting to see that and i appreciate that however when something huge happens that's affecting us right this second of course we're going to report that first so all right so let's get into our segment of special reports Now it is time for the Red Pill Special Report with your host, the Kentucky Guy. Eisenhower's Terror. Not only across the sea, but in America's backyard, 
Some of today's troubles trace back to Eisenhower. As Eisenhower delivered the first CIA coup in Iran. So he delivered the first CIA coup in Latin America. And as seen in Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, Haiti, and other Latin American and Caribbean facing countries. The effects of that foreign policy coordination are still being felt this very day. Like Moscow in Iran, Jacoby Albernez of Guatemala wanted his own people to benefit from their country's wealth. He took on United Fruit, which owned about 20% of the land in his country, and redistributed it. He also regulated major U.S. companies in Guatemala. In 1954, Eisenhower ordered the CIA to overthrow Albernez, and in late June of that year, it succeeded. See, folks, we've had our hands where our hands don't belong for many, many years. So the Latin American or Caribbean country most in the news today is Cuba. Hostile U.S. policies towards Cuba is usually traced back to the Kennedy administration. But in all of the three most important ways, those policies were born during the Eisenhower years. The U.S. embargo on Cuba went into full lockdown by order of Kennedy in February 1962. But the doors began to close already in September of 1960 when Eisenhower banned all exports to Cuba except food and medicine. So the embargo, the lingering heart of the bad relationship, traces all the way back to Eisenhower. Huh. How many of you listening right now thought that Kennedy was the complete one to blame on the tensions with Cuba. Mm-hmm. 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 Do your own research, folks. Do your own research. All right. And so the Bay of Pigs, through though again usually attributed to Kennedy, it was in May of 1960 that Eisenhower approved a covert action on Castro. By October 1959, Eisenhower had approved measures according to CIA expert John Prados, that led to a secret war. It was Eisenhower and not Kennedy who authorized the plan for the invasion of Cuba that would mature into the Bay of Pigs. Quote, there can be no doubt the revised CIA plan amounted to an invasion, according to Bados. Dwight D. Eisenhower, not John F. Kennedy, holds the responsibility there. The CIA plan to invade Cuba is dated December 6, 1960. Kennedy would be inaugurated 45 days later. Later. So like the embargo and the Bay of Pigs, the original signature on the plan to assassinate Castro is not Kennedy's, but Eisenhower's. In the summer of 1959, key officials in the Eisenhower administration reached a clear determination to bring about Castro's demise. The decision was cast for regime change in Cuba before Eisenhower left office. By October, secret but official U.S. policy was to overthrow Castro by the end of 1960. On November 5th, according to the Grande and Cordomon, the plan was approved by Eisenhower on December 11, 1959. According to CIA expert Tim Weiner, Alan Dulles, Eisenhower's CIA director, 
gave the go-ahead for Castro's elimination. Dooley's changed the elimination to removal from Cuba. Stephen Kaiser reports that on May 13, 1960, after being briefed by Dooley's, Eisenhower ordered Castro sawed off. Wow. So everybody thought that was Kennedy. Everybody. That's actually what you're taught in history class, that it was Kennedy. So these actions of Eisenhower sowed the seeds for the embargo and regime change policies that still bedevil U.S. relationships with Cuba this very day. And that is true. This very day we have issues with Cuba because of this maniac's control, wanting to control the world. So while Eisenhower did pull in the reins on American military intervention in other countries, he also built up and gave free reign to covert CIA operations. There would be 170 of them during his two-year term. 170 of them during his two-year term. That intervened in other countries and resonated 61 years after he delivered his famous farewell address and his warning about the potential excess of military-industrial complex. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And it just goes... I mean, folks, 170 covert operations in a two-year term, it's unprecedented. And people wonder why we're in the shape, why other countries look at us like the way they do. You know, let's, so let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's go back just a little bit because now, you know, we're tying in these families, right? The families who try to own the world, run America, the truly 1% of 1%. So let's jump back and let's find out where their money come from because it takes money to play this game that they're playing. So where does the money come from? Well, and how far back does the corruption of these families, where does it start? It's got to start somewhere. It can't just be, oh, I'm going to have a family and we're going to have a bunch of money and we're just going to be bad people. It can't, it, that, that's not how stuff works, folks. It's just not. So there's got to be a bad seed. And I think one of the bad seeds was Rockefeller Sr. On June 28th, 1849, Rockefeller was indicted for raping a hired girl in Cuyahoga, New York. He later was found to be residing in Oswego, New York, and was forced once again to decamp for parts unknown. He had no difficulty in financing his women-chasing interests from the sale of his miraculous cancer cure and from one other, another product, his wonder-working lemonade, which he offered at only, only $2 a bottle. It consisted of crude petroleum from which the lighter oils had been boiled away, leaving a heavy solution of paraffin, lube oil, and tar, which comprised the lemonade. William Rockefeller's original miracle oil survived until quite recently as a uh, consonant called nugel, consisting principles of petroleum and peddled as a laxative. It was well known that nugel was merely an advertising subcrimp, meaning new oil, 
as opposed apparently to old oil. Sold as an antidote to constipation, it robbed the body of fat, soluble vitamins. It being a well-established medical fact that the mineral oil coated the intestine and prevented the absorption of many needed vitamins, other nutrition needed need, uh, needs as well. Its marker adds carotene as a sop to the health conscious, but it was hardly worth the bother. Nujol was manufactured by a subsidiary of Standard Oil of New Jersey called Stanco, which, which has only other products manufactured on the same premises was the famous uh, insisticide flit. Uh, Nujol was hawked from the Senate office building in Washington for years during a more liberal uh, interpretation of conflict of interest. In this case, it was hardly a conflict of interest because the August peddler, Senator Royal S. Copeland, never had any interest other than serving the Rockefeller. He was a physician whom the Rockefeller had appointed as head of New York State Department of Health. In June and July of 1982, now we're getting a little bit more recent because we're going, we're going to jump back here. We talked about this already. But this is uh, this is this is important stuff because we want to. I want to show you guys how it all ties in together, every bit of it. Actually, you know what? That's Kinzinger. Let's see. Yeah, there we go. So when you talk about Dwight Eisenhower, one thing that you really got to talk about is the Eisenhower Doctrine. That was brought in 1957. So President Dwight Eisenhower announced the Eisenhower Doctrine in January 1957. And Congress approved it uh, in March of the same year. Under the Eisenhower Doctrine, a country could request American economic assistance and or aid from U.S. military forces if it was being threatened by armed aggression from another state. Eisenhower singled out the Soviet Soviet threat in his doctrine by authorizing the commitment of U.S. forces to secure and protect territorial integrity and political independence from such nation, requesting such aid against uh, overt armed aggression from any nation controlled by international communism. Yeah, so the Eisenhower uh, administration decision to issue this doctrine was motivated in part by an increase in Arab hostility towards the West and growing Soviet influence in Egypt and Syria following the Suez Crisis of 1956. The Suez Crisis would lead, which had resulted in military mobilization by Great Britain, France, and Israel, as well as the United Nations Act against Egypt, had encouraged pan-Arab sentiment in the Middle East and elevated the popularity and influence of Egyptian President Gamal Abdul Nasser, President Eisenhower believed that as a result of the Suez conflict, a power vacuum had formed in the Middle East due to the loss of prestige of Great Britain and France. Eisenhower feared that this had allowed Nasser to spread his pan-Arab policies and form dangerous alliances with Jordan and Syria and open the Middle East to Soviet influence. 
Eisenhower wanted this vacuum filled by the United States before the Soviets could step in to fill the void. Because Eisenhower feared the radical nationalism would combine with international communism in the region and threaten Western interests, he was willing to commit to sending U.S. troops, sending U.S. troops to the Middle East under certain circumstances. Ah, does that sound familiar today? Does that sound familiar today? Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. Any of that sound familiar, boys? Uh, the first real test of Eisenhower doctrine came in 1958 in Lebanon when the threat was not uh, armed aggression on or, or a direct Soviet incursion. Lebanon's president, Kamila Kaman, requested assistance from the United States in order to prevent attacks from Kaman's political rivals, some of whom had communist uh, learnings and ties to Syria and Egypt. Eisenhower responded uh, to the request by sending U.S. troops into Lebanon to help maintain order. Although Eisenhower never directly invoked the Eisenhower Doctrine, the American action in Lebanon was meant not only to help the government against its political opponents, but also send a signal to the Soviet Union that would act to protect its interests in the Middle East. Yeah. And like I said, always do your own research. Anytime we talk about any subject, doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter who's talking about it because really you've got to do your own research. That way you know what's happening, what's going on, why it's happening. And you just don't have to take somebody else's word for it. Because it just, it is just, there's so much false information out there. There's so much, well, I think it's this way, so I'm just going to throw it out there and see if it sticks. Kind of stuff happening these days that I really, I really just don't understand why people don't take the time to look stuff up before they talk about it, before they try to have a conversation, before they do a podcast, before they go on other podcasts, before they get on the news. I mean, folks, if you're getting your news, your complete stories and headlines from CNN, Fox News, and this crap out there right now, and you're still doing it, I mean, shame on you. Shame on you. Because that's the only news stories you watch and you try to talk and have legit conversations with people about what's going on or what you think is happening in the world, and that's your resources? I mean, come on. So let's go back to World War II real quick, and let's let's talk about a little bit about Eisenhower and, and McCarthy and that relationship because it's important. We've talked about McCarthy in the past. This is important stuff. So the end of World War II saw the United States defeating two enemies, and that was Germany and Japan, and gaining a new one, the Soviet Union. The wartime alliance between the U.S. and USSR had proven to be a marriage of confidence, convenience. With the ink barely dry on the treaties ending the war, the two now dominated world powers found themselves locked in a battle over course of post-war events. The Cold War had begun. As the relationship between the USSR and the U.S. deteriorated, the fear of a red menace grip, America, such sentiments were eagerly exploited by politicians seeking 
to fan the flames of communism hysteria. Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy was one such politician. McCarthy grabbed headlines in 1950 with his claim that he held at least the list of 205 State Department employees who were known communists. When pressed for details, he reduced the number of names to a list to 57, but still maintained his fiery demands for their expulsion. Dwight Eisenhower found Joseph McCarthy's uh, uh, sayings rehensible. As a military man, he had been able to distance himself from petty political Crusades in the name of a greater cause. But in 1952, as a first-time candidate for the office of presidency, he found it would be a good deal more difficult to maintain his political purity. When McCarthy delivered a blistering attack against former Secretary of State George C. Marshall, calling him a man stepped in falsehood, candidate Eisenhower was faced with a dilemma. A popular member of his own party was publicly despairing a man like considered a value mentor. I considered a value mentor. Eisenhower's personal and political instincts came into conflict during a campaign stop in McCarthy's home state of Wisconsin. Eisenhower was prepared to deliver a defense of Marshall, praising him as a man and a soldier, and condemning the tactics of MacArthur as a sobering lesson in the way of freedom must not defend itself. But noble intentions gave away to political reality. Aware of McCarthy's huge base of support and not willing to risk losing votes in a crucial state, Eisenhower delivered his speech minus the defense of Marshall in combination of McCarthy. It was a decision that would haunt him for the rest of his life. McCarthy's influence did not abate after Ike had entered the White House. In an apparent effort to demonstrate that he, too, was tough on communists, Eisenhower supported leg- les- uh, legislation <laughs> exceeding the reach of espionage and sabotage laws and authorized the FBI to step in in efforts to infiltrate and disrupt Communist Party activities. Eisenhower refused to grant executive clemency to Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were convicted of spying for the Soviets, even though he admitted being impressed with all the honest doubt concerning the fairness of their trial. Ike allowed the execu- uh, execution to go forward in the hope that it would better it would deter others. But various new organizations, including the general support of Time magazine, criticized what they called the Eisenhower administration's disgraceful episode of appeasement of McCarthy and his anti-communist crusade. Yeah. President Eisenhower defended his refusal to denounce McCarthy's publicly, claiming that to do so would only further uh, polarize the nation and record uh, McCarthy with additional publicity. To his critics, to his aides, Eisenhower vowed, I will not get into the gutter with this guy by the end of 1953. Foz indicated that at least half of all Americans had a favorable impression of McCarthy and his tactics. Uh, emboldened by such support, McCarthy set out to widen the scope of his investigation. This time, however, he would go too far. So raise your hand if you've heard this story before. Pretty interesting, right? So when McCarthy, he armed, well, armed with a little more 
than hearsay and innu innuendo set out to expose communists within the U.S. Army. Eisenhower decided enough was enough. He instructed his staff to present information that would discredit McCarthy. It was revealed that McCarthy had petitioned the Army to award preferential treatment to his assistant, David Shine. Finding himself on the defense, McCarthy demanded notes of meetings between Eisenhower's administration personnel and army officials. Eisenhower established a presidential president by invoking executive privilege and refusing to turn over the notes, claiming that the matter of national security might be breached if administration officials were forced to testify under oath. Eisenhower robbed McCarthy of the opportunity to uh, pursue his inquisition. From that point on, the Army and McCarthy hearings uh, degenerated into a series of increasingly unfounded and paranoid accusations. See how our history shapes. Do you see? Do you see? Do you see? Eisenhower quietly exerted pressure on Republican senators to go forward with a censure of McCarthy. In, 19, in December 1954, the Wisconsin senator was condemned for conduct unbecoming a senator. Eisenhower had been successful in undermining McCarthy by employing uh, hidden hand tactics, but critics contended that more decisive actions could have been prevented many innocent people from being forever tainted by the groundless charges. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, so let's, let's wrap up Eisenhower. So he was, he was, he was an army hero, right? I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. He was, he was, his military service, I mean, he did, what, right at 30 years, and, I mean, he's a hero. I mean, that's fantastic. But as a president, and as a human, as far as, like, his racism and, and things like that, man, he wasn't the best guy. I mean, we're still today feeling some effects that he done, you know, that many years ago. Back in the, in the 50s, late 50s and 60s, I mean, he really, he, he really wasn't a very good, a good person, a good human. And a lot of people, a lot of people do not know this about him. They don't. They look at the war, the war uh, history on him, how long he was in the military. And, oh, yeah, he's a good guy. You know, I mean, did you all know that he was one of seven sons? One of seven. And, you know, so he had, he, he didn't always have it easy. I understand that. And I, I just want to, you know, I want to introduce you to these guys, these presidents, because they really do shape up where our country is now. And a lot of the policies, as you, as you've seen, they just, they just didn't work then, and they definitely don't work now, and they're still having an effect, still having an effect on our kids and our everyday life. And, you know, I mean, he did do a couple good things. He's got a school. Uh, he's got an institute at Gettysburg College. He's got the uh, United States Military Academy. I mean, don't get me wrong. As a military man... Great. As a president and as the thirty fourth president of the United States, 
and a human, not great. I mean, he he actually left. He left people hanging on World War II at the beginning. He left other countries, Churchill, and I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying, do your own research, look into this guy, and you'll see. He's still not as bad as Woodrow Wilson, trust me, trust me, he's still not as bad. But, he's got a bunch of flaws, he surely does. Alright folks, so that is about all the time we do have, that does wrap up the special report on Dwight Eisenhower. You've been listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. <laughs> With your host, the Kentucky Guy. And as always, folks, God bless and God bless America. Thank you.